The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Today, yes today, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of predestination. So I want to ask you, um, show of hands, it's okay, you can be honest. How many of you, when I say the doctrine of predestination, are like, I have no idea what Pastor Dan's talking about? How many of you, all right, no idea, good, good to see. Um, how many of you say, yes, I'm so glad Dan is talking about the doctrine of predestination? Raise your hand, be honest. How many of you are looking for the closest exit? Raise your hand. All right, all right, all right, all right. Or, or all of the above, maybe. I don't know if that's possible. But, um, you know, there are, the doctrine of predestination simply says this, that God chooses whom he will save. As you can imagine, it's a topic that gets people pretty fired up. Uh, in seminary, we called things like this toxic issues, and it was actually in regards to counseling. You know how in your family there are those toxic issues that you cannot talk about in family settings? Maybe it's religion or politics or, you know, if, if grandpa was, a, was an alcoholic, you don't talk about alcohol or whatever it might be. There are those things that you don't talk about. Maybe finances, work, whatever it might be. And so you just talk about the weather, right, because it's not toxic. And so you have this this trash can full of toxic issues that you don't talk about with your family. Well, this is a toxic issue for the family of God. Not that it is bad in its content, but it creates so much rivalry and passion and even some anger in it. It's uh, oftentimes an elephant in the room. And so we're going to actually look at, at it today. We're going to get toxic and uncover and look at this great doctrine of predestination. If you would please open up to John chapter 6, page 892 in the Red Bible, if that's what you have. If you're in the Children's Bible, it's page 1310. We actually have in John 6 a predestination sandwich. It's kind of interesting because Jesus talks about being the bread of life up to verse 35. And then in verse 48 to the end, he talks about being the bread of life. And right in the middle of those two slices of bread is this heavy, thick doctrine on predestination. And so it should be fun. I'm excited. Uh, I told Mark that this will probably be the largest service we have for the next year because uh, people might get too fired up over it, but it should be fun. John 6, verse 35 through 48. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, not, should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread, of life, bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? 
How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord, in accordance with this passage, we pray that you would draw us to yourself. That you would woo us with your love and your grace and your mercy. That we would get great joy out of this passage because it expresses the unconditional, overwhelming love of a heavenly Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are many churches that will try to do many things with this text, and one of the most popular ways of dealing with texts like this is simply just to skip it. Um, I have a good friend who has been a Christian for many, many years, gone to many, many churches, and has never heard a sermon about this topic, this doctrine of predestination, even though it occurs throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, because it is just easier to skip these texts. Let's just stay with the easy text. You know, why did, why did Jesus say something they knew would, would fire people up? So why should we read this text? Why should we go through this text? Well, first off, it is Scripture. 1 Timothy 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and is useful for teaching. And so this is useful for us. But also because, you know, we do expository preaching, which means we go straight through the Bible, because we don't want to conform the Bible to our opinions and our, and our, uh, and our preferences. We want, we want the Bible to conform our theology to it. And so we just walk straight through the Word of God, which means we will go through hard passages such as this. But the second reason that we want to talk about this passage, this doctrine of predestination, is because it is good news. It is good news. Jesus saw it as good news. The Apostle Paul opens his letter to the Ephesians with this long run-on sentence that lasts, I think, 10 or 12 verses of his exalting God because of his predestined love for them. It goes something like this. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And this long run-on sentence starts like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. This is a great blessing, a great joy, even though it's a toxic issue for many of us. And so we want to look through it because it is something to rejoice in. And my hope is that all of us will rejoice in this truth by the end of the service today. So we're going to look through this, and uh, just to give you a brief history, this doctrine of predestination has been talked about throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, and it's debated hotly in many theological circles, which you may or may not be in, and that's okay. But it really came to the surface in the Reformation, which is in the 1500s, 
when, uh, when, when people were returning to the Word of God, men like Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, and they had this robust understanding of predestination. And so there was a discussion between them, more like an argument, between them and other theologians, and there was this acronym that came out of it, and that's what we're going to look through today. And that acronym that sprouted was the acronym TULIP. And this kind of lays out the elements of this doctrine of predestination. And so all of these are contained in the passage that we're looking at today, except for one. And so we'll look at that one briefly. But this is kind of going to be our layout for the sermon today. TULIP, okay? The elements of this doctrine of predestination. The first is T, which stands for total depravity. As sinners, we are unable to choose God. That is the simple definition. Nobody can choose God. That depravity is so pervasive in us that we have no ability in and of ourselves to follow God, to choose God, to love God, to surrender to God, that we are enslaved to sin, that we are enemies of God, hostile to God, unless God intervenes. We see this in this passage in verse 41. You can follow along with me. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? This is a logical argument. They're saying, How can Jesus say he's from heaven? We know where he's from. He's from Nazareth, right? He was born in Bethlehem. Why would he say he's from heaven? We know his parents. It goes on, verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourself. No one, notice how comprehensive that is. It doesn't say some or most. No one can, the, the, let me pause. the Greek word for this word can is dunamai, which we get dynamite from. It means to have power, to have the ability to do something. No one can come to me unless, this is the contingency, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says that the reason why the Jews did not put their trust in him is because no one puts their trust in Jesus unless the Father draws them. Now, just to be clear, we can look at this doctrine and we can say, God is at fault. But God offers Jesus to everyone, but out of our own free will, all of us by nature reject him and walk away from him. A great illustration of this in scripture of our spiritual deadness is found in the story of Lazarus. You know the story. Lazarus is sick. He's about to die. Uh, His sister sent for Jesus to come and heal him. Jesus waits two days just to make sure Lazarus dies so he can teach him something. He gets there. Uh, after Lazarus has been buried and is stinky for four days. And Jesus, who says, I am the resurrection, says to Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. He didn't say, now Lazarus, do you want to be alive? Dead men can't make those decisions. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And so he does. You know, we are so sinful and we are so spiritually dead that we cannot choose God in our own will. I know this even from my own life, even from my own testimony. When I was growing up, I would have been considered a good kid. People would have said, you're a good kid from a good family. I had good behavior reports. I would even have said, you know what? I love God, but I didn't. I, I hated God. Church was like the worst hour of my week. 
I couldn't wait to, to get out of there just to go to lunch or go eat a meal or go watch football or something. I just wanted to leave. When, uh, when, when people introduced me to the Bible, I was like, this is just horribly boring. I'd have far more fun with the cardboard box that it came in than with the Bible itself. I remember one time we went to play basketball, my sister and I, and this guy between games uh, said, you know, now I want to tell you guys about Jesus. And he was loving and caring and generous. And I was just like, what are you doing? There's daylight burning. We need to play basketball. I wanted nothing to do with God. There are still residual effects of it in my life. You know, it's, it's funny how easy it is to watch an hour or two hours of football or three hours or four hours or watch it at night, watch, you know, whatever it might be. And yet to get in the word of God is so hard for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It's a constant reminder of our depravity. God says, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father unless he draws him. Romans 3, 10 through 11, which Jason read earlier, states it again very clearly. It says, none is righteous, no, not one, No one understands. Five negatives here. No one seeks for God. We are helpless unless God intervenes. The second part, T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, says this. God's choosing of you is not contingent on you. When God chooses some to be saved, he doesn't look down the corridor of time. He didn't look down the corridor of time and say, you know, Dan Jackson... He's going to be a good guy. Dan Jackson, he's going to have really strong faith. You know, Dan, I need Dan, right? God, like I would say, I need Dan to be a pastor. So I'm going to save Dan because Dan is so worthy of being saved. No, God looked on the corridor of time and said, I know how rotten Dan is, and I'm going to save him despite himself. This is the one of Tulip that is not really explicit. It's kind of implicit in the passage, but it explicitly talks about this in Romans 9. So I'm going to read through that. It should be up on the screen behind me. It says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, right? Wasn't their goodness or their badness, in order that God's purpose of election might continue Not because of works, good or bad, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So what is God's saving love contingent on? Is it contingent on their family birth? No. Is it contingent on their works? No. Is it contingent on their human will? No. Is it contingent on the human effort? No. What is it contingent on? It's contingent on God. We see here it's contingent on God's mysterious purpose of election. It's contingent on God who calls. It's contingent on God's undeserving mercy given to sinners. It's contingent on God's compassion. You know, the NFL draft comes around once a year, and it's actually becoming more and more exciting. These franchises spend uh, months, even years, looking at prospective 
players. And they, they want to determine how quick they are, um, how their hands are, their blocking skills, their tackling skills, whatever it might be. They're, they're evaluating all of these things. And then wisely on draft day, they pick the right person that fits their organization. God doesn't draft like that. God doesn't choose like that. See, God drafts dead people, which for NFL owners would not be a very good draft pick. But God drafts dead people. And just like NFL players get all of these riches, God drafts dead people to pour out the riches of his grace and mercy and love upon us. Wow. Isn't that good news? It's not contingent on us. It's contingent on God. This is such a great assurance as we'll see later. I don't want to get into it now. All right, I need to skip forward. There's a lot here. L, limited or a particular atonement. God sent Jesus to die for the elect. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not just to make salvation possible, but actually to make it actual. To, to, to actually save people. Not to just, Jesus didn't die and say, okay, I'm going to see if anyone accepts this and maybe they'll accept it and maybe they'll be saved. Jesus died actually to save people, a chosen people, his church. Verse 44, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. It's a particular people who God draws and I will raise him up on the last day. The only ones who come to Jesus are the particular ones that the Father draws. Jesus goes on to say that, that God teaches these people. And everyone that God teaches will indeed come to him. It's, it's, it's rooted in the Old Testament, which we don't have time to go into. But it is particular. It is limited. It is given to a group of people, to individuals. Jesus actually says it in a positive way in verse 37. He says, all that the Father gives me, all of them will come to me. And so the Father has given some to Jesus, and there are some who he has not. This is a difficult doctrine to comprehend. Jesus says these things. He's, in John 17, he talks about this in many ways, but there's one verse, John 17, 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them, meaning his sheep. I am not praying for the world, but for those who you have given to me, for they are yours. Acts 13, 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So here's what's at stake. Is Jesus' blood make salvation possible or does it make it actual? Does it, is it 100% effective? There's a story I... I think it's a true story. I'm not sure who the people are in this, but there's a story of a man who's driving through Chicago and he's got an old whatever car. He's a mechanic and he sees a limo over to the side of the road and it's broken down and the, the, the driver has the wheel off and he can see the driver struggling to put it on. And so the man pulls over and he helps the man put the wheel back on the limo. And after they successfully do that, the passenger calls the man in. And so the man gets into the limo and, and the passenger, who's obviously very wealthy, says, what can I do to, you know, how much can I pay you for this service? And the guy said, you know, no, that's okay. You know, I'm just headed home for dinner with my wife and my kids and I had time to stop and do this, but I need to get going, you know, because dinner is served. And so he said, well, give me your address so I can send your wife some flowers 
and tell her why you're late and thank her for, for her sacrifice. And so he says, okay, gives the man his address. And, and sure enough, the next day, here come flowers with a thank you card. But something very odd also happened. Uh, days or weeks later, the man went to write the check for his mortgage. He sent it into the bank and it got returned to him. He thought there was an error, so he, he called the bank and they said, no, no, your mortgage has been completely paid off. He said, How, that's impossible. And they said, no, this man, this passenger, came in and paid off your mortgage. You see, this is the beauty of the gospel. That, you know, this man didn't just give the bank 250000 and say, you know, apply it to whatever house you want. He said, no, I am paying for this man's debt. When Jesus Christ came, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he had in mind you. He had in mind his elect, those that he came to save, and he paid the price in full. You can't even deny if you wanted to, which you won't want to, as you'll see. But he paid for it, really, in full. He pays for our debt. You know, if a soldier saves someone who is dead and revives him, we call him a hero. But if God does it, we question his goodness. We say, why would God not save everyone? But the real mystery is why would God save anyone? I don't know why he would save any of you, at least any of you that I know well enough. You're all messed up. You're like me. You're sinners, right? You marry who you think is the best person in the world, and after, I don't know, a day, you find out, wow, they're a sinner too. It's without exception, and God sees all of your sin, and yet he has chosen to love you and to pay for your debt on the cross. Okay, I, irresistible grace. This is fun, isn't it? A little? All right. Um, All the Father calls will come. Verse 37 says it very plainly. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Um, It doesn't say some, but all that the Father gives will come. So it's irresistible grace. Now, uh, this may sound like a contradiction of everything that I just said, which is fun. But the Father does not draw anyone, the Father does not draw anyone against their free will. All right? So no one's going to be saved and say, oh man, I really didn't want to be saved. Nor is anyone who is not saved going to say, I really want to worship God. See, what God does is God actually goes deeper than our will. Our will is an expression of our heart, isn't it? The decisions we make, it's an expression of what's going on deep inside of us, our longings, our cravings. Our will is an expression of everything that we are. And so God goes deeper than our will and changes something more profoundly. Let me illustrate to you like this. If you had a pet lion, which I wouldn't recommend, but if you had a pet lion and you let him out into the backyard, I'm just picturing this, and there is a salad and there is a heap of steak, right? Which one is the lion going to go for? The steak, right? He's a carnivore. Now, do you have to uh, curb his will? Do you, have to, do you have to convince him to go for the steak? No, because it's who he is. It's, he's a carnival. If he ate salad, would he die? No, but he wants the steak. A hundred out of a hundred times, he will choose the steak. Now, let's say you could snap your fingers and you could change that lion into a lamb. And you send that lamb out into the backyard and you have the salad and you have the steak. Which one is it going to choose? The salad, right? Because it is an herbivore. If it ate the steak, it wouldn't die. 
But it's not inclined to do so because that is not who it is. It is an herbivore. What God does when he saves people is he doesn't, he doesn't go against our will. He changes who we are. We become a completely different person. He gives us a new heart, a new soul that longs for him. And our free will is to run after him and pursue him. Ezekiel 36 describes this beautifully. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's talking about the new covenant whom God has come to save. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And then here it is, verse 26. This is the most important verse of it all. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And it goes on. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Salvation is not just making a decision. It is something far greater than that. It is becoming a new creation. Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. What irresistible grace tells us is that God made us a new creation with new desires to pursue, follow, and love him. God's grace becomes so lovely and glorious to us that it is just quite simply irresistible. All right, let's continue. P, the final one, perseverance of the saints. All that the Father draws will never lose their salvation. Some put it this way, once saved, always saved. That's how they put it. Verse 37, read along with me. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me, and it will never be cast out, that none of them shall be loosed. The more accurate description of this doctrine would be the perseverance of God. Because it is God who saves and sustains his saints. It is God in Philippians 1, 6 that Paul's talking about when he says, I'm confident of this, that he being God, not us, who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is such a great comfort for people like us who struggle with sin, who struggle with doubt, to know that our salvation does not rest in us, but it rests in God John 10, 28, later, Jesus says this very explicitly, talking about his sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. This is such a sweet doctrine of assurance, isn't it? That even when you let go of God, The hundreds of times a day, God will never let go of you. So that's tulip. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited or particular atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Now, we have to get to the final part. What are the two responses to this teaching? After Jesus teaches this predestination sandwich of bread, predestination bread, (laughs) 
we come to verse 60. It says this, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. That's the understatement of the year. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? This is definitely a difficult statement for many reasons. As a matter of fact, I would love to be a fly on the wall in all of your community groups as you talk about this because this is a hard saying. It's hard, one, just to wrap our heads around, to wrap our hearts around, but it's hard because it attacks our self-exalting theology, doesn't it? It says it's not up to you, it's up to God. And it makes us completely depend on God and not upon ourself. But we are called by Jesus to choose him, to follow him out of our own free will. I know that sounds contradictory. But there are things in scripture and in life that are what are called antinomies or antinomies, which seem to oppose one another, but both are true. So in nature, you see this with light. Is light a particle or a wave? It's both, right? It doesn't seem like both can be true, but both are true. In the scripture, we see this antinomy. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was asked this question, how do you reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And his response was, I do not reconcile friends. In other words, they're not enemies. They're friends. And our puny minds cannot comprehend it. You know, my, my friend Drew Kalashin, he's not here today. Whenever he reads something like this, he always says, it's like, right? When you read this, that God is sovereign and we are responsible and they join together. It's if you figure out, we can write a book, make millions of dollars. We are finite people who have a limited understanding of God, and yet both of these doctrines are completely true. And we see it here. Jesus, we see people fleeing Jesus. That's one of the choices we have. John 6, 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? This is what Jesus asks us. Do you want to go away as well? But then it goes on. And throughout, throughout the passage, Jesus is, is petitioning them to believe, to follow, to trust, even as he's telling them of God's sovereignty. The second option is this, is to choose to follow Jesus. Read with me in verse 66. And we'll get to this in a few weeks as well. But after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? In other words, what will you choose to do? What are you going to do? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. God is sovereign over all things and yet we are called to trust in Jesus. We must respond to Jesus' hard teaching, not by trying to completely comprehend it, but to trust him and to follow him. If you're here this morning, is it because you chose to came to come, or is it because God foreordained that you would come? The answer is yes. God has you here for a purpose this morning. Could God be wooing you to himself? Could God be drawing you to himself? Could God be saying, trust in me? Did God bring people in your life to bring you here? Do you have this unexplainable urge to follow God, to seek God, to see God, to have a relationship with God? None of that is a mistake. It is a work of a gracious heavenly father. If you're here today and you say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. God has drawn me to himself. You might ask the question, why would I ever share the good news with anyone? 
And it's ironic that we'd ask that because two of the people that promoted this predestination theology the most were Paul and Jesus, the two greatest evangelists to ever walk the face of the earth. See, what we get to do is we get to share the gospel with a spiritual graveyard and we get to see people come alive. What a glorious joy that is. So we are called to follow Jesus. Final illustration. During his days, uh, there was a guest lecturer named Kuiper, and he was asked to, to talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So he gave this illustration. I thought it was a very good one. He said, I liken it to two ropes, both going through a pulley above. Which, and if I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling only to one and not to the other, I go down. I read that many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election, predestination, his chosen, and so on. I read also the many teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These seemingly contradictions cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, one piece. What will you do with this teaching of Jesus? Will you go away as well? Where else shall you go? Only the Lord Jesus has the words of eternal life. He is the Holy One of God. God predestines. Follow Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this is a... (laughs) Hard text. It's a wonderful text, a hard text, God, because, uh, because we are finite, but also because uh, we want to do everything ourselves, Lord. We pray by your grace, continue to draw us. Thank you for how you have made us new creations, given us new wills that long for you, that long for a relationship with you. And even though our old nature still fights and still tries to grab us. God, you have put inside of us a new heart and a new soul that delights in you. And we praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.